So I didn't particularly enjoy pregnancy, but I had a pretty easy one. Labor started fine. You know, my husband and I had gone through childbirth education and we had done, a, you know, Bradley method coaching stuff. And, and Chris, my husband, was a champion at it. So good at working through the breathing exercises. We were like ready. Elizabeth Palaya is an early childhood development expert at Zero to Three who supports home visiting in tribal communities. She is a first-generation descendant of the White Earth Band of Chippewa Indians. She's also a doula and a mother. She wasn't all too different from other first-time mothers-to-be. She did the training. She figured out who would watch the dog while she and her husband, Chris, went to the hospital. In short, she made a birth plan. But sometimes, births have plans of their own. Sometimes our bodies get out of step with our minds, and events change course in an instant. My poor doctor was, I think, just shocked by this absolute just switch in like, I'm here, we're working through this, to like, I'm not doing this anymore. Save the baby if you want. <laughs> like, I'm done. Over the next four episodes, we'll unpack Elizabeth's story of pregnancy, birth, and bonding with her baby to get a better look at the origins of mental health an origin story that begins even before our time on Earth. This is The Earliest, a Zero to Three podcast. I'm your host, Ernestine Benedict. Zero to Three is the nation's leading nonprofit, ensuring all babies and toddlers have a strong start in life. Join me as we explore mental health and well-being in the earliest years of life, the years that matter most. This season, we focus on infant and early childhood mental health. Infant and early childhood mental health is a mouthful. Sometimes you'll hear it called IECMH, which helps, but not a lot. What is IECMH? Well, we'll break down that jumble of letters. We'll dive deep into what IECMH is, what it looks like, and answer the question of when exactly should mental health care start? In this episode, we'll hear about Elizabeth's experience birthing her first child, Annie. It begins as a typical birth story. Labor, driving to the hospital, being wheeled down the hospital hall to a room. But not long after, everything changes. No one can tell Elizabeth's story better than Elizabeth herself. But before we jump in, I want to give you a heads up that we'll touch on some sensitive subjects. We feel incredibly grateful that Elizabeth trusted us with her story. I'll let her take it from here. Yeah. So I selected my hospital. It's kind of a chicken or an egg thing, but I liked that healthcare system because I appreciated that their hospitals had a fairly low cesarean section rate. It was beautiful. It had private birthing and recovery rooms, which was really important to me. You know, I remembered thinking about the show Friends where Rachel goes into labor and people are constantly coming in and out and then being moved into the actual birth room. I knew I didn't want to labor with other people hearing me and people coming in and out. So I, I loved that unless there was some kind of massive surge of births that day, I would have a private room to labor in. I'd been laboring at home. I could not sleep through the contractions. I'd gotten stuck in our bathtub and my husband had to help me out. I was like, it's happening. This is happening to me. Just 
drop me off and they'll get me. They got me a wheelchair. They brought me into the triage room and they checked me and they were like, you are half a centimeter dilated. You cannot be admitted yet. And I just felt so defeated. I was like, but I've been doing this forever. So I walked around for about an hour with my husband. Uh, apparently, I found the will to walk. <laughs> and uh, yeah, when they checked me again, they were like, oh, great, you're about four centimeters. So yes, you can be admitted. You know, hallelujah. And I said, please give me whatever drugs are okay for you to give me right now. <laughs> so I advanced pretty well through. I had an epidural at about, I think, eight centimeters, seven or eight centimeters. And I think about five o'clock in the evening, my doctor came, which I'd been nervous because it was Easter. I was like, oh, I bet he's with his family. I feel so bad. But he came. He was so excited. It was time for me to start pushing. My sisters were telling me through text, like, you're going to have a baby by the end of the day. That's amazing. And as the sun set, so did my hopes and my optimism. By sundown, Elizabeth had been laboring for hours. First at home in the tub, then wandering the hospital halls, hoping for more dilation. With each check-in with her doctors, she hoped to be one step closer to meeting her baby. But each time, she instead learned just how much farther she had to go. She was worn out, mentally and physically exhausted. And that's when it got complicated. At about the time I was going to start pushing, and I'd been in labor for probably 24 hours at that point, and been in the hospital for about 12 of them, I started to show signs of preeclampsia. Preeclampsia is a pregnancy complication of dangerously high blood pressure for the birthing person. That can mean the baby receives inadequate oxygen, blood, and nutrients. It's particularly dangerous when it goes on for too long, both for mother and child. My blood pressure skyrocketed. I was having some swelling, other things. And then my daughter's heart, heart rate started to respond poorly. So... I got hooked up to an IV of magnesium sulfate, which, you know, I don't know if if you're experienced with it. It makes everything feel terrible. <laughs> it makes you feel like you're running through quicksand. It makes you very, very hot. I remember telling my husband at some point, I would trade you <laughs> for a bottle of water right now. I would say goodbye to you forever <laughs> if someone would just give me like a 12-ounce bottle of water. <laughs> I was just burning up and just felt unable to move. At the same time, I was starting the process of pushing, which I was excited about. You know, like, let's let's get this done. I'm, I'm ready to be done. And so I had my husband grab one of my legs and the nurse grab another, which I wasn't aware was a thing. I was fully prepared for, like, stirrups. <laughs> like, this is going to be 50 style. I am going to be up in the metal contraption, and I am going to push that baby out. For some, this might be a small shift in the plan. Maybe even a welcome one. Human beings rather than metal stirrups. But for Elizabeth, that couldn't have been further from the truth. I grew up in a home where I regularly witnessed domestic violence, where both my parents struggle with alcohol issues, where mental illness is both rampant and not spoken about. I don't think I'm unique in that way. You know, we don't talk about these things. They're just there. But I think when you grow up with a certain model of, of your relationship, sometimes you tolerate things that even if you recognize are bad or don't feel the healthiest, you put that above all others. And 
you know, I'm still parsing through some of these things, this search for affection and, and this fear of rejection and, and what those very primal urges have led me to do and to accept. By the time I was an adult, I had been raped in high school a couple of times by different people. And it was something that I, one, didn't talk to a lot of people about because you don't want to call attention to yourself or anything that could get you in trouble or could be seen as negative. And I knew at that point that the formula for what I wanted, which was affection and approval from my parents, was to kind of lay low unless I was achieving. <laughs> and this was not that. <laughs> so, you know, it was something that I, I wasn't able to safely talk about with a lot of people. But I had gone through some individual therapy. I've struggled with anxiety and depression. I mean, basically from the time I was a child. So, you know, I was on antidepressants. It was something that I had kind of figured was like locked up. Like, yes, this was a bad thing that happened. I don't wish it upon anybody else, but like I'm moving past it. I'm in a much better place and so on. In that delivery room, Elizabeth's history with sexual assault was the furthest thing from her mind. It was an awful reality of the past, not something for her to contend with in the moment. She was ready to be done with labor, and she was ready to have this baby. But trauma isn't only housed in the mind. The body remembers, too. And that, I think, was the biggest trigger for me, was and it, a fairly innocuous thing, too, you know, holding the legs up to help you as you push. It wasn't people's hands inside of me. <laughs> it wasn't anything, you know, remotely sexual or anything like that. Looking back now, I'm seeing, I see a lot of triggers for that that past sexual assault and, you know, feeling another being inside your body and experiencing all those, you know, the physiological differences and, and challenges. But I also, I didn't want to make a fuss I didn't want to hurt anybody's feelings. And there was also this feeling that like, well, I should trust them. They've delivered a million babies. If this is how it's supposed to be, then this is how it's supposed to be. And I will just deal with being uncomfortable. But I remember laying there and feeling like a caged animal, just desperate to escape. I could feel movement inside of me. There were people touching me. I was just burning up. I couldn't have water. And I started to dissociate. And I remember almost feeling like I could look down and see myself there. Like, everything just spiraled from that moment. Poor Chris, who is the just the most loving, supportive person who, again, went through all these coaching sessions and came in excited to be there for me, just shut down. You know, he watched me just completely remove myself from the situation, and I think panicked. It all just culminated in this feeling of, I've been here all day. This is not working. My room is full of people I don't want to be here. I am being touched by people I don't want to be touched by. And ultimately, everything else kind of blurred away. I just remember feeling let down by myself and everybody, and that I had hit a wall. I had just hit a wall. And my doctor was trying so hard to be so encouraging. You know, he was having me reach down and he was like, you can feel her head. You're so close. And I remember just begging. I, I said, please, 
please just give me a C-section. And he said, you know, Elizabeth, we've talked a lot about what you want. I know you wanted to do this and, and you're so close and you can feel her head. She is right there. You know, we can do this together. And, and I remember at one point asking, like, does what I want matter at all in this process? Does how I'm feeling factor into any of this? And he said, of course it does. I said, I don't feel like it because I am begging you. I am telling you I want to die. And you are not doing anything about it. Whatever is happening, this process is not working. So either do something or don't expect me to be part of it. Peace out. I'm done. I remember saying, like, you might as well schedule the OR because I'm dying. I'm not part of this anymore. And I did. I had an emergency C-section. My daughter was born and she was healthy and wonderful. And I do remember at one point, when they were pulling Annie out of me, and my husband said, oh my gosh, Elizabeth, we have a baby. And I said, I don't care. <laughs> I was like, I'm too tired to care. I'm glad you're happy about our baby. <laughs> and so my family was a little shocked seeing me go down, go down the hall. And I remember just feeling as nondescript as the hospital room was. I, I, I felt empty. I, I didn't feel like there was anything left to give, and I didn't feel like there was anything worth giving it for. Luckily, after uh, having some water <laughs> and getting a little sleep, I was very excited to see my daughter and to spend that time bonding with her. But it was a really hopeless few hours where I just felt like I'd been dragged along the back of a wagon and just left for nothing. <laughs> I had, despite a decent level of education and a good amount of support from my family, had had this traumatic birth experience that shattered my mental health for a while, that affected how I bonded with my daughter. Elizabeth's story lays bare the foundation of IECMH, that our mental health begins before we ever enter this world and that a child's mental well-being is intricately bound up with that of the person who carried them. We'll dig deeper into Elizabeth's story, but first, let's take a step back. What is IECMH? Infant mental health is the developing capacity of the child from age birth to five to form close and secure adult and child relationships, experience, manage, and express a full range of emotion, and explore the environment and learn, all in the context of family, community, and culture. That's Jen. Well, my name is Jennifer Boss, and I am the Director of Infant and Early Childhood Mental Health Coordination and Strategy at Zero to Three. My professional background is in social work. Jen's expertise goes beyond just the academic. She's a mother, too. The infant and early childhood mental health field in the scheme of things is still fairly new and is a field that not a lot of people, even in the mental health world largely, have a good understanding of. And it actually begins even before birth because a young child's mental health is inextricably linked to the mental health and the physical health of the baby's caregiver or the mother. 
A crucial moment for a baby's mental health is the moment they pass from the womb to the world. But as we see in Elizabeth's experience, birth can also be a pivotal moment for the birth giver themselves. How do they feel during the birth? Like Elizabeth, does a past trauma unexpectedly trigger emotions and bodily responses? Is it a medically smooth process? Because crucial or not, pivotal or not, that moment is hardly ever picture perfect. What birth looks like varies from person to person and even from child to child. The birthing experience itself is one that can be beautiful and life-affirming and really empowering. And it could be one that is highly traumatic, that involves great medical risk to baby and or mother. Meet Kathy. I'm Kathy Mulrooney, and I'm the Director of Infant and Early Childhood Mental Health Strategy at Zero to Three. I have been involved in infant and early childhood mental health for over 20 years and have been involved in the field of mental health for nearly 40. Like Kathy said, birth can be a storybook experience or a harrowing one. And the impacts of that spread far wider than just the moment of birth itself. The birth giver's experience can influence how they bond with and nurture their child in those earliest days. Maybe that's a physical impact like a C-section. Here's Elizabeth again. You know, you hear about women who can't lift their babies and who really struggle. I felt great after mine. And the impact of identical procedures can also be informed by their context. What state of mind was the birthing person in when the decision to operate was made? Was the C-section planned? An emergency operation? Just the stress of like, my body failed me. I never viewed the C-section as a failure. I hate that line of thinking. It was the fact that it just shut down totally and I could feel it happening and couldn't stop that. It's just, again, you know, you go in with certain ideas of how you're going to do it and then everything changes. Not only are these experiences incredibly difficult for the birth giver, but they can weigh heavily on the baby as well. Here's Kathy again. The brain really is experience dependent, meaning that the connections in the brain are based on experiences and our earliest experiences are built on relationships. So relationships are really important, not just in those first weeks, but as the child continues to grow to reinforce those connections, um, to allow for their growing kind of understanding of the world and people in it is through their, their relationships. And so that is really the strength in the early years is, is learning through relationships. A traumatic birth can mean that parents might not be able to be as emotionally present as they would like to foster those relationships. It's an impact that can stretch out into the first weeks and even months of a child's life. With such far-reaching effects, it's imperative to make the birthing process as smooth as possible for the health of both birth giver and child. What can that look like? One answer may be simpler than you think. So when I was doing my master's capstone project, my daughter was about a year old, and that was the first time I was learning about what a doula was, what the role was, uh, how they can help in, in so many ways. So it really was just a matter of having some time to process my own birth and seeing how different it was the second time around for me that really cemented, like, I bet if I had 
like a trained mentor, a doula, I bet this would have been so much easier for me, would have been better, would have helped me process things. Elizabeth's story may strike you as black and white, happy and sad. But for Kathy, it's all about the gray areas. I think that Elizabeth was a case where she went into this with a lot of knowledge and interest. You know, she talked about the Bradley method and her, that she and her husband were, the, were stars in that class. So she did all the right things. And if she also had perhaps a doula or if the folks in the hospital had asked some of those questions, if, if they were able, again, with medical issues, sometimes you're not able to pause and give that person a moment to kind of collect themselves because of the urgency of the issue at hand or preeclampsia, the baby's heart rate. But if they did know and had that opportunity to give her some just moments of to transition, like we're going to need to lift your legs now, you know, even kind of giving some warning without doing that. But this is a great example of where many things went right in that experience, but what her life experiences brought to this difficult birth made it just so unraveling for her and so triggering for her. Next week, we continue our focus on Elizabeth's story, but take a step back in time, back to the beginning, even before conception. Infant and early childhood mental health begins well before a baby is born. You know that a child's mental health is bound up in their parents. But just how far back does that connection go? I, again, had a really easy pregnancy and there was something about it that was very unnerving to me. While I loved feeling Annie kick when, when we first felt her kick, I was so excited. But there was always part of me that just felt a little detached from, like, what was happening that's next time on The Earliest. Find out more about Zero to Three at our website, zero2three.org. While there, check out our upcoming trainings and conferences. And if you love the show, be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to The Earliest on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast. Thanks for listening to The Earliest. I'm Ernestine Benedict. The Earliest is produced by Zero to Three in partnership with Pod People. Special thanks to our production team, Stephanie Chow, Madeline Daniels-Benderev, and Ricky Webster from Zero to Three. And the team at Pod People, Rachel King, Matt Sav, Amy Machado, Hannah Pedersen, Rebecca Shawson, Shanice Tyndall, and Carter Wogan. Hey, listeners, one more thing before you go. You know, Elizabeth's not alone in her experiences. Almost 20% of mothers in the U.S. report less than optimal mental health. This reality and other important data are highlighted in Zero to Three's State of Babies Yearbook 2022. This report was just released. It's a powerful tool to get policymakers to do the right thing to ensure all babies have what they need to thrive. You've got the power now get the data at stateofbabies.org and join us in taking action.